Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as we have already heard this morning, this is the season of Epiphany. Last week was Epiphany Sunday. This is the season where we remind ourselves and we celebrate that Jesus uh, was sent as a light to the whole world. And this morning, uh, we're going to start reading the book of Acts together. Uh, Acts is uh, the companion volume to Luke's gospel. And it also happens to be the story of how the light of Jesus began to spread out into the whole world. It is the story of the early days of the church, and that makes it very much our story. So I'm going to read from the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with all the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you'd be happy to use this word that we have read and heard together to meet every one of us here this morning in whatever place we find ourselves, um, whatever days and weeks and even mornings we have come from, where we find ourselves in faith or out of faith. Meet us and show us your grace, your goodness, your love, your calling on our lives. Don't let anything stand in the way of that pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the gospel lesson uh, that Brian just read is one of my favorite Easter stories. 
here's the backstory to what we heard before the sun had come up on that day. Mary Magdalene and the other women had gone to the tomb to mourn for Jesus and to care for his body. Uh, he had been taken down off of the cross quickly, and so his body hadn't been properly prepared. So these women had come with spices to care for Jesus and to mourn for him just like they would anyone else that they loved that much. And they got to the tomb that morning and they discovered that something was horribly amiss. The stone had rolled away from in front of the tomb and there was no body inside. So Mary and the other women leave and they run in fear to Peter and to John and to the rest of the disciples and they tell them what they've seen. Peter and John They run like mad to the tomb, and they find that it's just like the women told them. The stone's gone. The body's gone. They don't know exactly what to do. Peter doesn't know what to do. John, for his part, thinks he knows what's happened. But since they don't have anything to do with the tomb, they just go back home. Meanwhile, Mary had slowly made her way back to the tomb. And when she gets there, she's all alone. And she stands there at the tomb doing what she had come those hours ago to do in the first place that morning, to mourn for Jesus, to weep for this teacher, this friend. And at some point she turns and she sees someone standing there. Now we know it's Jesus, but she doesn't know. She mistakes him for the gardener. And slyly Jesus asks her why she's crying and who it is that she's looking for. Now, the fact that some random gardener couldn't possibly know that she was there looking for someone, it doesn't click with Mary. And this is what she says. She just says, listen, if you've taken his body, just tell me where it is. And Jesus answers her with one word. He says, Mary. And as soon as she hears her name, she figures out who it is. And Mary comes undone with joy. And she does what any of us would have done if we were in her shoes that morning. She grabs Jesus and she wraps herself around him and she clings to him. I think Mary would have probably stayed there forever if she could. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Mary's wildest dreams... (laughs) The dreams that she probably felt like a child for having have actually come true. (laughs) He's not dead. He's alive. And what does Jesus say to Mary in that beautiful, tender moment? He says, don't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to my father. You know what I think Jesus is doing? I think Jesus is telling Mary that as wild as her dreams have been, she has not yet dreamed wildly enough. Something even greater than that moment is coming. Something greater than the greatest moment of her life is coming. And in order to get to that, she's going to have to let him go. So just let that story sit in your head because over the next 40 days, Luke says, Jesus keeps having these kind of moments with people who loved him and followed him. That's what Luke is talking about at the beginning of Acts in those verses that we just read when he says that he presented himself to them with various proofs 
over 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So we have a few of these instances recorded in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians, and we can assume they all went pretty much the same way. Jesus eats some fish with people, maybe some bread. He talks to them. And like he did with Thomas, he gives them the proof that they need to know it's really him and that he's really alive. And then here's the part I think that's worth us paying attention to because it's important to the story that we're reading. The heart of Jesus' teaching after the resurrection is exactly the same as the heart of Jesus' teaching before the resurrection. Luke tells us this this is what he taught them about during those 40 days. He taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, church, the kingdom of God is, is not a tangential topic to Jesus. It's not some ancillary topic. The kingdom of God is everything to Jesus. It's it for Jesus. He had come to announce the kingdom and the rule of God in this world and all of his other teaching, doesn't matter what it was about, about money, about worship, about piety, about ethics, whatever it was, all of his other teaching flows from the fact that he believed that God, through him, was ushering in his peaceable and gracious rule in the world. When Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, he was talking about God coming in Jesus to be with his people again and to forgive their sins and to restore them, to cause them to flourish, to make them to be the people that they had been created to be. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God coming to be with his people again and remaking the whole world through the cross and resurrection by defeating evil and defeating injustice in this world and reestablishing the peace in which and for which the world was created in the first place. Every saying, every story, every parable, every healing, every miracle, every sermon of Jesus was about the kingdom of God. God is remaking this world through his rule and he is remaking his people. Every, everything that Jesus did was about that. So it should not surprise us at all that after his resurrection for 40 days, along with eating and drinking and convincing people it was really him, that Jesus continued to teach about the kingdom of God. And here's where we get to why that was important. And here's also where we find out that Mary Magdalene wasn't the only one who hadn't dreamed wildly enough. All of the followers of Jesus including the apostles who were hanging out in Jerusalem those 40 days, they had not yet dreamed wildly enough. Here's what I mean. Luke Luke tells us in verse 6 that when they're finally all together in one place, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That kingdom of God stuff that you talked about so much all the time, is this the moment that it happens? As John Calvin, who Riley said, that there are as many things wrong with that question as there are words in it. And here's why. Because that question makes it clear that the apostles were thinking about the kingdom of God in crassly nationalist terms. Jesus, when do we get to overthrow Rome with you? 
Jesus, when does Israel become the top nation? You remember when you talked about us ruling with you, it was great. Where's our thrones? Where's our scepters? When do we get fitted for our robes? Where's the victory march start? Because we want to tell our friends and family to be in the staging area. Jesus' resurrection had rekindled these nationalist desires in them, but Jesus wants these slow learners to know that they're thinking about the kingdom all wrong. They are not dreaming nearly wildly enough about the kingdom of God. It was far too small, far too pinched off in their imagination. So he says two things to them in verses 7 and 8. The first thing that he says is is that it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's okay for you not to know what you don't need to know. But their longing, their longing is right. Even if it's too myopic just then. Their longing for the kingdom of God, it was right. And I hope it's a longing that all of us share. I hope it's a longing that all of us are learning to share. Because we can look around the world and we can see very clearly that God's kingdom, his gracious and peaceable rule, has not been established in its full flower in this world. It is not yet fully present. The violence And our city reminds us almost every day that that is true, that it's not yet fully here. The 5,600 homeless persons in our city, many of whom had no place to sleep inside last night, remind us it's true. It's not all the way here. The sheen of anger the sheen of self-righteousness that covers all of our political conversations locally and nationally reminds us it's true. It has not yet fully come. Orphans around the world, orphans who have been separated from their families by storms or by violence or abandonment or neglect, they remind us their lives are eloquent witness to the fact that it's true. The kingdom is not fully here. Syrian refugees who have lost what little they had in the floodwaters in Lebanese refugee camps remind us it's true. It's true. In our own hearts, sometimes wavering and selfish and unfaithful, if we have the courage to admit it, reminds us that it's true. This world is not yet the world God made it to be. And his gracious and just rule has not yet covered the earth and not yet fully staked out our own hearts. And so Jesus has good news for them, really good news for them. He's saying to the disciples and he's saying to us that it's not always going to be that way. It will not always be that way. The full flower of his gracious and just rule is coming. He says that moment is fixed by his own authority so we can be sure that it will come. And church, that is at the heart of the Christian hope. That is at the heart of what we long for and live out of. So their longing, their longing is right. 
and to the extent that we share their longing, it's right. The how of it, the when of it, that's what's wrong for them. And so Jesus says the second thing to set them straight. He says, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus is telling them, he's telling you, he's telling me, he's telling his church, we have a job to do, and we have all the power that we need to do it. It's okay for us not to know what we don't need to know. It is more than enough for us to know that we have a vocation and everything that we need to carry out that vocation in this world. In this world that is not yet as it should be. So do you see why I say that they they hadn't dreamed wildly enough, that their narrow nationalist vision had made them miss the fact that God was calling them through Jesus to something even bigger, that he is calling them to be part of what is happening in this world, the planting of the kingdom of God everywhere in the world. The late John Stott talked about this just about as well as anyone ever has. He says, the kingdom of God is spread by witnesses, not soldiers. Through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And by the work of the Spirit, not by the force of arms or political intrigue or revolutionary violence. The kingdom of God is spread by witnesses. And who are those witnesses? Jesus says, it's us. You and me. And so I got to ask, have we dreamed wildly enough? Do we know who we are? And are we willing to live into the vocation that we have been given in this world, to live as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus where we are and then moving out into mission in the world? People like you and I were called to do that in a thousand different ways with all of the different gifts and talents and abilities that we have been given. When we gratefully give of our resources, for instance, to orphans, like in Haiti, as many of us do. When we give of our resources for the benefit of others, we are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. When we do our jobs well, whatever it is you've been called to do for your days, whatever it is you spend your time on during the day, when we do our jobs well to the best of our abilities with an eye towards justice in that work, with an eye towards truth in that work, with an eye towards beauty in that work, when we treat the people that we work with and for with love, even if it costs us, we are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is that you do. You could be an accountant, a parent, a teacher, a cop, a builder, a musician, artist, lawyer, student, programmer. The kingdom of God. It can be sown into the place where you work. 
You are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus there. When we find places to serve, to use what we have been given for the good of others here at our church in the various ways that we have here or with Breakthrough or World Relief or Sunshine or wherever, church, I want you to know these aren't simply add-ons to the resume of our already busy lives. These are places where we quietly and patiently sow the kingdom of God as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. When we care for our neighbor, the person who lives next door to us, down the hall from us, because they cannot care for themselves. When we pull up a chair and we listen to their suffering and we speak of the hope of Jesus, we are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. We are sowing the kingdom of God in those places. Sometimes we may be frustrated, right, that it's not making the big impact that we want to see. It's not happening as fast as we want to see it. But Jesus has a little word for us. It's okay if we don't know what we don't need to know. It is enough to know that we have a vocation in this world and all of the power that we need to live that vocation out. And that means that some of us, starting for sure with the preacher, Some of us need to dream a little more wildly about what that means in our lives. Jesus is inviting every one of us in here who follows him in faith into mission, mission with him in this world. And I'll tell you, those early followers that are there for those 40 days, our mothers, our fathers in the faith, they they don't have any idea, but here's the truth around the corner, just around the corner, Their witness to the resurrected Jesus is going to begin to turn the world upside down. People are going to find out they can know God. They're going to find out their sins can be forgiven. Orphans are going to be taken care of. The sick are going to be taken care of. People who have no hope will find hope. And that is pretty good news for a bunch of slow learners. And if the shoe fits... Let's put it on and join Jesus in in his mission in this world. So there's only one thing left. In order for this to happen like Mary Magdalene had to do before them, they're going to have to let go of Jesus. In verse 9, Luke says that as Jesus, like literally as he is saying these things, and they are looking at him, he's lifted up and a cloud takes him out of their sight. We call this the ascension of Jesus. And the ascension of Jesus to the Father is the best thing that could have ever, ever happened to them. And I know that might seem odd. What could be better? What could be better than being with Jesus? might have seemed odd to Mary to be told, hey, there's a better thing coming, and in order to get to it, you have to let me go. So let me very quickly, just briefly, mention three reasons why the ascension was the best thing for them and for us. The first reason is because it means that Jesus has gone with our humanity where we are meant to go. Don't think of it in terms of geography. Just forget about that for a minute. Just think of it in terms of the reality of it. 
Jesus with our humanity is with God. Just like our first parents were with him in the garden, he is with him. It's so different from our present experience of life, it's hard for us to get our minds around it, but the good news is that it is happening right now, and Jesus, through his ascension, has made a way for us to get back to that. The life every one of us was made for. He has made a way for us to get back to it because he has gone there as one of us. He has skin and hair and teeth and fingernails and his heart is pumping blood just like yours and mine are. And he is with God. The author of Hebrews says it like this, He became like us in every respect so that he could lead many daughters and sons to glory. And if we're united to Jesus in faith, we will know God. We will be known intimately by him. We will walk with him like we were meant to. It's good news. Second, Jesus' presence with the Father means that he is offering to the Father the worship and the praise and the obedience that we ought to, but often cannot. We're not always faithful in our witness to the resurrected Jesus. We live out of pride and greed and selfishness sometimes. Sometimes we keep our stuff to ourselves, our time, our resources, our abilities, and we do not love as we ought. But our elder brother Jesus is there, and when we sin, he shows his father his hands and his side, and he makes an airtight case for our forgiveness. He has paid the debt already. That's good news. And the last reason that Jesus' ascension is the best thing for us is something that we'll talk more about next week. But it's, I think, what Jesus was trying to get across to Mary. I mean, I'm sure she thought, why do I have to let him go? It's so good to be with him, but be realistic, of course. Jesus is going to have to go see other people. They're going to have to get a bite to eat. They're not always going to be together physically. And so Jesus says to his followers, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus' ascension does not mean that he has left us. Jesus' ascension is the necessary prelude to him being present with us by his Spirit everywhere at all times, right now. It's good news. And this is, of course, why uh, as the apostles are staring up uh, into the sky with their mouths open that these two fierce, frightening messengers come and say, hey, men of Galilee, why are you staring into the sky? (laughs) He will come back. And in the meantime, you have work to do and all of the power that you need to do it. Stop gazing for him and start doing with him. Stop gazing for him and start doing with him. And church, this is the shape of our life together. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see and believe through this word. 
What would it have been like to be there, to hear these words, to hear ourselves be told we are the witnesses, and then to see him go away? Father, we have heard it and we have seen it through your word, and we ask that you would help us to believe that your love, your grace, your mercy is that good, that you have given yourself for us and to us always through your spirit, that you have given us a new way to live in this world and all of the power that we need to live that way. Father, help us to see and believe, and we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.